Hello and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus and I'm so glad that you've joined us for today's episode. I'm pretty excited about today's episode because we're going to be talking about a very, I think, fun topic. Uh, It's one that's often debated a lot amongst Christian circles. Uh, It's the topic actually of uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. It's one of the most prominent debates between Calvinism and Arminianism. It's around the doctrines of grace. And we're going to be looking at this uh, from a biblical perspective And I'll be arguing a biblical case for these doctrines of grace. Now, the doctrines of grace, in my opinion, are some of the most beautiful truths of the gospel that were clarified as a result of the Protestant Reformation. Now, many Christians have found them to to deepen their understanding of the gospel and, and their appreciation of the lavish grace that was poured out upon us in salvation from the Lord. They are a great biblical summary of key points of the Bible's teaching on soteriology, which is the study or theology of salvation. How were we saved? However, many evangelicals still don't understand the doctrines of grace or they are unconvinced by the biblical support. So that's what we're diving into today. Let's roll the intro and we'll jump into the episode. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. All right, so the topic of Calvinism has generated no amount of small controversy, right? Uh, Yet many times the arguments and internet debates that uh, they can tend to generate a little bit more heat than light. I'm sure if anybody has ever hung around uh, Facebook comment wars, perhaps on the doctrines of grace, on the five points of Calvinism, you have seen that uh, play out. And my hope in this, uh, what will probably end up being a series of podcasts, uh, is to help shed some lights, uh, light on the topic by laying out the major teachings of the doctrines of grace and their biblical support. Because at the end of the day, we want to be biblical in our theology, right? And while I'll mention some of the counterpoints, that this series isn't going to be primarily focused on responding to criticisms, but rather on laying out a positive biblical case for the doctrines of grace. So before we jump into the five points, though, we should go into some necessary introductions and definitions because this is one of those topics where people kind of talk past each other because they have different definitions in their minds. So I want to get things straight. Let's start off with the five points of Calvinism. Now, this is more this particular topic is more popularly known as the five points of Calvinism. Uh, these doctrines have enjoyed a recent revival, I would say, amongst contemporary evangelicals. Uh, and the, the name, though, I think can be a bit of an unfortunate misnomer. Now, firstly, the name seems to imply that these five points encapsulate the totality of Calvinism, or what might be better re- re- referred to as Reformed theology. However, this is a woefully anemic uh, understanding of Reformed theology, in my opinion, uh, of which you know the doctrines of grace, though they play an important role in Reformed thought, they're not the sum total of the depths of insight that the Reformed tradition has to offer. So I'll just put that up front as a clarifier and just a disclaimer, right? Like Reformed theology doesn't start and end at the five points, okay? Now, the late R.C. Sproul, he actually helpfully clarifies, he says this, the the late theologian uh, Cornelius Van Til once made the observation that Calvinism is not to be identified with the so-called five points of Calvinism. Rather, Van Til concluded that the five points function as a pathway or a bridge to the entire structure of of Reformed theology. Likewise, Charles Spurgeon argued that Calvinism is merely a nickname for biblical theology. These five points are simply a summary of the Bible's teaching on salvation by grace alone, hence why I prefer actually the classical name of the doctrines of grace. And I'll aim to show this, um, you know, that this, this is a biblical doctrine in this series. Secondly, the name sometimes implies uh, that they stem directly from John Calvin, right? He was a reformer in uh, the Protestant Reformation. Well, actually, he was a second generation reformer. In truth, though, the formulation came after Calvin. It was a response um, from the Reformed to the Arminian Remonstrance uh, that they posited, the Arminian Remonstrance posited five points of objection in opposition to the Reformed theology. 
And perhaps ironically, you know, Jacob Arminius, uh, he was 1560 to 1609, uh, studied in Geneva, actually, under Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza. So a little bit of history that perhaps you don't know. Uh, and he would eventually become a professor of theology and reject cert certain uh, of, uh, points of Calvin's doctrines pertaining to soteriology, which is the theology of salvation. His followers, under the, the name uh, Remonstrance, drafted up five articles and put them before the authorities in Holland. The Reformed response to these came at the Synod of Dort, which happened between 1618 to 1619, uh, which are reflected actually in the canons of Dort, which was the documents that came out of that Synod of Dort. And this became properly known as the five points of Calvinism. So the five points of Calvinism were actually in response to the five points of objections that the Arminians raised. One of the defining features of Reformed theology or Calvinism is, is God-centeredness. The point which orients all of Reformed theology is the glory of God. R.C. Sproul once again helpfully clarifies, he says that Reformed theology is not anthropocentric. That is to say, Reformed theology is not centered on human beings. The central focal point of Reformed theology is God, and it's the doctrine of God that permeates the whole of the substance of Reformed thought. Thus, Reformed theology, by way of affirmation, can be called theocentric. Now, this is important to understand when considering the difference between a, between a Reformed understanding of salvation and a more Arminian-leaning understanding. The nature and character of God as the beneficent, uh, absolute sovereign is the primary and core principle of Reformed theology's system of doctrine. Other systems of theology, arguably, give much more place to man's importance and ability. However, as we'll see, this is not what the Bible shows to us. Man is not the measure of all things, nor the center of the universe. God is. And this must be our starting point as theologians. This is why all of life must be lived solely deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. God is, the most, is most passionate for his own glory. And you can see passages like Isaiah 42.8 and 48.11, or Romans 11.36, Galatians 1.5, Philippians 4.20, etc. For examples of that, it's all throughout the Bible that God is most passionate for his own glory. And that's because if he was to give his glory to another, that would be idolatry because it would be to give his glory to a lesser, less worthy being, really. So God has to be most passionate for his own glory. Every true Christian actually instinctively understands that we are saved to live to God's glory. And Reformed theology is the systematic outworking of that instinctive and biblical conviction as clearly supported by God's word in every area of life. Thus, this, the thing that's central to the doctrines of grace, and I hope that you hear this loud and clear as just kind of introduction, the thing that's central to these five points of Calvinism is the glory of God in salvation. Now, let's talk a little bit about the flower of Calvinism, right? Uh, these five points are often shorthanded by the acronym TULIP, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, although I find that the TULIP acronym can be helpful to remember, it's definitely easy, uh, you know, memory tack, right? I kind of agree with Dr. Sproul that these headings may be a little bit misleading and can lead to some misunderstandings. And for this reason, I actually prefer uh, these alternatives. So I prefer radical corruption instead of total depravity. I prefer sovereign choice instead of unconditional election and maybe definite or particular redemption or atonement instead of limited atonement, uh, and effectual calling instead of irresistible grace, and preservation instead of perseverance of the saints. And I'll explain a little bit more as to why I prefer these uh, different sort of categories uh, instead of the typical tulip um, as we progress in this. However, if I was to go with these um, you know, different headings, it would make for a little less glamorous of an acronym. You know, maybe I can make it spread or derps, right? Uh, but I guess TULIP is a lot more, it flows a little bit better off the tip of your tongue, right? So um, we can keep using the TULIP, but uh, I think that we need to explain clearly what is meant by each heading, and that's what we're going to seek to do. So this series uh, will aim at primarily illustrating these doctrines right from Scripture itself so that we may more clearly see the glory of God in salvation. Now, while we'll take a look at quite a few scriptures, these are, these, um, 
this the series as we go through it is not to, meant to be a fully comprehensive or exhaustive, right? It's not meant to engage in a lot of the, the debates that are out there, although I will respond to some things. Um, but there, I think, are good books, which uh, I'll cite along the way that do a better job of this. But I hope to point you in those kinds of directions. And I also think that it's important for us to see right from God's word how these doctrines are derived. So my hope is that you'll see um, how thoroughly biblical they are and that this would move us to greater awe and thankfulness and worship of God for his amazing grace and salvation. So let's move to the first um, letter in the tulip, let's say, right? The bad news. This is uh, the one that people usually kind of get hung up on, right? This is the bad news of the T in the tulip, which is total depravity. And I warn you, things might be worse than you thought, um, but stick with me and keep on listening until the end. You know, don't stop at the bad news. We're going to get to the good news. So let's talk about uh, total depravity. And this is an uncon uncomfortable doctrine for many to wrestle through. As it, you know, it, it confronts us with the truly depraved nature of our sinfulness. However, if we ever had doubt that humanity was depraved, a short peruse through the comment section of a controversial YouTube video or a Twitter thread about politics, perhaps, should cure you of that in short order. Um, it's obvious that people are sinful. Now, the question, though, is how far does that depravity go? So let's talk a little bit about the Arminian versus the Reformed position on man's sinfulness first. So the Arminian position countered the Reformed theologians by asserting that man is spiritually sick the fall had very serious, seriously affected uh, man's condition. However, people still have the ability to choose spiritual good. Uh, man's condition may be dire, but it's not, he's not you know, spiritually dead or unable. Rather, he determines his eternal destiny by responding to God's offer of grace, either by accepting or rejecting his mercy. And this is often the default view for many Christians, right? It seems obvious that we can choose between good and evil, and therefore it's ultimately a matter of our free choice. However, we have to consider, is this what the Bible teaches? Now, the Reformed position, on the, on the other hand, countered by affirming that man is actually spiritually dead. He's not just sick. Because of the fall, um, spiritual death came, and so we're blind and deaf to the things of God. Thus, apart from God's grace, Fallen humanity is unable to choose spiritual good and determine his own destiny. John Piper actually helpfully comments here. He says this, quote, The totality of that depravity is clearly not that man does as much evil as he could do. There's no doubt that man could perform more evil acts towards his fellow man than he does. But if he is, but if he is restrained from performing more evil acts by motives that are not owing to his, his glad submission to God, then even his virtue is evil in the sight of God. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is a radical indictment of all natural virtue that does not flow from a heart humbly relying on God's grace. End quote. In William Shedd's words, total depravity means, quote, the entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. And that's a really important um, distinction. I'll say that again, that total depravity actually means the entire absence of holiness, but not the highest intensity of sin. And that's from his dogmatic theology. That's William Shedd. This now is the bad news that we have to understand before we can fully understand the good news of the gospel. And is indeed quite a grim picture that scripture paints of our fallen state. And we're going to take a little bit of a look at scripture now and see the scriptural support. So now I'm going to lay out five main points that scripture clearly teaches um, to us about humanity's condition after the fall. So firstly, after the fall, we're spiritually dead. In Genesis 2 verses 16 to 17, God gives his command to Adam and Eve not to eat of the forbidden fruit because when they do, they shall surely die. Now, this was no idle threat. When Adam and Eve ate of that fruit in rebellion to God, death entered the world. And as our representative head, Adam's fall plunged all humanity into sin. They died spiritually and would eventually die physically as well. Now, Paul actually affirms this in Romans 5.12. He says, quote, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus dead, uh, death spread, spread to all men, because all sinned. 
Now, even more emph emphatically, Paul describes our condition prior to salvation in stark terms in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Note what the apostle says. He says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Not sick, not somewhat hindered, but able to struggle a bit. Dead. Spiritual deadness is the opposite of spiritual life. Now note also the description of what our spiritual deadness is, right? Because after he says that we were dead in our trespasses, he describes what it is. And it's not that we can do nothing, but rather what he describes as spiritual dead deadness is that we follow the course of this world, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and minds. The spiritual deadness that Paul talks about is a deadness to the things of God. So when a Calvinist says that we're dead in sins, it doesn't mean that the, the, the unbeliever can't do anything or doesn't have any volition. No, actually they do. And he also says, um, Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath that we were set against God. And this is what it means to be dead in sin. This is why God must make us alive. This is what the new birth is, what regeneration entails. Uh, Paul again in, in Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice there, right? That we were dead in our trespasses, but it was God who made us alive. And because of our total inability to respond to God and to do any spiritual good, God has to make us alive. He does this by our union with Christ through faith. If it were not for God making us alive together with Christ, the second Adam, we would all remain dead in sins inherited from first Adam. And again, you can see Romans 5, 12 to 14 for that. Now, Robert Letham, in his systematic commentary, uh, systematic theology, sorry, comments, uh, it is true that fallen people can do much good uh, of a moral, social, and uh, cultural nature. They can show love to family, perform acts of kindness, produce great works of art, and make major contributions to civic welfare. However, apart from the regeneration by the Spirit, they cannot do these activities to the glory of God. And that's the real difference there. Let's take a look at the second point, that fallen man's heart is corrupt. So not too long after the fall, we see in Genesis 3, um, 6, 5, sorry, that sin had so greatly multiplied in the earth that, quote, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, this is quite a sorry assessment of the state of fallen humanity's, humanity's heart after only just a few generations after the fall. It says only evil continually. However, even after God wipes the earth clean with the flood to start over with Noah's family, it doesn't seem like the sinful condition of humanity had changed much. After the flood and Noah's sacrifice, the Lord um, says, you know, and, and the Lord smelled the, the, the pleasing aroma and the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. That's Genesis 8, 21. So even after the devastating judgment that sin brought to earth, the intentions of the heart still remained evil in the unredeemed humanity. The preacher actually in Ecclesiastes affirms that truly the heart of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. That's Ecclesiastes 9.3. The prophet Jeremiah actually famously gives a dire assessment of what the human heart is he says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it that's jeremiah 17 9. our hearts are deceitfully wicked and apart from god's grace to the extent that we often uh, can't even perceive how just how much our hearts deceive ourselves and our uh, the wickedness inside our hearts right that we kind of have this self-deception going on this is why actually we need the lord who searches the heart and tests the mind to expose uh, to expose it to us, right? And you can see that in verse 10. Now, that's not, not, not enough there because Jesus himself affirms this fact as well. 
This is not just the teaching of the Old Testament text, but Jesus in Mark 7 says that from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So contrary to what our modern secular culture says that all of our problems are external sources from outside of us, Jesus says that the root of evil actually hits much closer to home. Evil comes from within us. The heart of our problem is that our heart is the problem. It's the radical corruption of our desires, motives, affections, and intentions. So our contemporary culture's advice to just follow your heart is way off the biblical mark. Don't listen to that. We actually need a new heart. As Robert Lethem in his systematic theology says, in practice, total depravity means that there is no human faculty left untouched by sin. Even in relative terms, the mind, as well as the emotions and appetites, is biased against God. We need re renewal in the whole person. Let's look at a third point. Fallen man is spiritually blind and deaf. That fallen man is spiritually blind and deaf. The fall, in addition to spiritual deadness, also brought spiritual blindness and deafness. We cannot see or hear the things of God because our nature is corrupted by sin. The author of Hebrews says of the un of unbelieving Israel this, he says uh, in Hebrews 4.2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Because they had not been united by faith to Christ, they were still spiritually deaf to the good news of the gospel. Now, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able, notice, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So prior to regeneration, prior to God making us alive, we're not able to understand spiritual things. He goes on to explain the source of this spiritual blindness in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, he says, in their case, the God of this world has, what, blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. So here we see that spiritual blindness is a result of the work of the God of this world, Satan, or over unbelievers. However, spiritual blindness is not just a New Testament concept. Even in the Old Testament, we see that spiritual blindness is a result of God's judgment on people. For example, in Zephaniah 1.17, God says, I'll bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. And even Moses recognized that God had to open people's spiritual eyes and ears. And he said in Deuteronomy 29.4, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Right? So even in Deuteronomy, Moses is recognizing this reality. Jesus himself, right, Yahweh incarnate, he said in John 9 verse 39, For judgment I came into the world, that those who... Uh, who do not uh, see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Paul echoes this motive, actually, in, of, of God's judgment over sin in giving sinful humanity over to their sins, actually, in Romans 1. There, because of their inexcusable suppression of truth, you can see verses 18 and 19, and their unwillingness to give thanks to God and their reasoning uh, ends up becoming um, futile, and their hearts are darkened. You can see that in verse 21. This continuing downward spiral of depravity leads God to giving them over to their lusts and passions. And you can see that in verse 24 to 27. And eventually over to a debased mind in verse 28. So that they not only sin willfully, but also give approval to others. And that's where it ends up in verse 32. So thus, spiritual blindness is caused by the influence of Satan. And also, it's part of God's judgment against sinful people and giving them over to reap the consequences of their sin. Let's look at a fourth point now about total depravity, that fallen man is under Satan's control and in bondage to sin. We saw that Satan's influence over unbelievers causes spiritual blindness to the gospel. And replying to the Pharisees in John 8.44, Jesus tells them frankly that you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So those in rebellion to Christ also follow after their spiritual father, the enemy of God and the father of lies. 
And this is why Paul said in Ephesians 2.2 that before God saved us, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, and why he calls us children of wrath. Those who are apart from Christ are in the snares of the devil, having been taken captive uh, by him to do his will. See 2 Timothy 2 verses 25 to 26. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3.10 that our, work, that our works and affections manifest whether or not we are children of God or children of the devil. He goes on to say in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world apart from Christ lies under the control of the devil. Paul affirms actually that we were slaves to sin in Romans 6.20 and that before God saved us, uh, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's Titus 3.3. So this is why none of us can boast in our salvation. And this is a really important point of Reformed theology in, in salvation that we can't boast in our own salvation. Prior to God making us alive and saving us, we were by nature children of wrath. We were like the rest of mankind. And this is why we should have a profound humility as well, because we were enslaved to sin, in spiritual bondage. And this is why Jesus needed to set us free. See John 8, 31 to 32. Fifth point here, that apart from God's grace, fallen man is totally unable to repent and believe the gospel and come to Christ. Now, don't take my word for it, right? Take Jesus's word for it because he says so. In John 6, uh, John 6, 44, he says that no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So how many can come to Jesus on their own? None, no one, he says so. Now note also the, the Greek word that's used here, right? El, el cool. Um, translated uh, as draw, right? Uh, that's the word that, that's, that's translated as draw in this, in this passage when it says, the father who sent me draws him, right? This, this drawing doesn't mean to woo, right? Some people kind of misunderstand this because in English, it, it can kind of mean that, right? That you, you're drawing someone to you, you're trying to woo them over, right? But we can't simply impose a definition on a word that's not warranted. We have to understand the word as it's supposed to be understood from the Greek text. And the way that the Bible uses el cool is as having the meaning of actually drag or to pull along a dead or inanimate weight. You can see this in such passages like John 21, 11, where it's used for dragging a net, or in Acts 21, 30, where Paul is dragged out, and Acts 16, 19, where Paul and Silas are also dragged out into the marketplace. Now, they weren't being wooed, <laughs> They were being dragged, right? And thus the father must draw or pull along or carry us to him, carry us to Jesus Christ. So John 6 is one of the clearest explanations of man's inability from the lips of Jesus himself. And if it wasn't clear enough already, he actually repeats it even more clearly in verse uh, 65. He says, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. So coming to Jesus must be granted by the Father. And this is a clear and um, an unambiguous statement. There's no other way really to interpret these words other than to try to intentionally um, somehow find some loophole around this. This is a clear statement by Jesus that no one can come unless it's granted to them, right? Now, why is this? It's because man in his unregenerate state of fallenness is unwilling and unable to come to God. Paul says this much. Uh, clearly quoting from the Psalms in, in Romans 3 verses 9 to 12, he says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You guys hear that? Not even one. Those words should floor us at the realization of the depths of our depravity before God's mercy rescued us from ourselves. You see, we were our own worst enemy. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
Note how emphatic this repetition of the inability of the sinner is. He is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, and indeed cannot please God. So this doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption due to sin exposes our inability to save ourselves. It removes all pride and boasting um, from our, in ourselves for our salvation. As Jonathan Edwards famously quipped, right, he said that the only thing that we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And the Westminster Confession of Faith beautifully summarizes the Reformed doctrine of total depravity this way. It says, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. That's from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Article uh, 9 and point 3, I think. Now, this first point of the doctrines of grace is quite a doozy. Often, uh, we want to think a little bit better of ourselves than what is actually true. However, the truth is that we're more radically broken and hopeless than we even dared to admit. But this also means that we're more graciously loved and amazingly rescued by a God who is infinitely more merciful and compassionate than we could even dare to dream. This doctrine of total depravity, of our radical corruption due to sin, is actually the dark blackness over which the brilliant light of the gospel will shine brightest. And by gazing into it and allowing our eyes to adjust, we'll be overwhelmed afresh by the blazing glory of God's sovereign grace and salvation to sinners like you and me. We recognize that we've been forgiven much and therefore we love much, Luke 7, 47. As Robert Lethem healthily uh, summarizes, he says, in short, the reality of total depravity leaves no possibility of salvation by our own efforts. It points to our dire condition from the fall and the sovereign work of God in rescuing us. Only the Holy Spirit can change us and transform us into the image of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Okay, so that was total depravity. Let's talk next about the you in TULIP, which is unconditional election, or the way I like to say it better, God's sovereign choice, right? And there's been many internet debates that have been fought over election and predestination. I even remember just having a lot of these debates with friends and family in Trinidad and in the States and even up here in Canada. And uh, it's definitely one of those doctrines that we can get stuck on and I hope to bring a little bit of clarity, right? As with all doctrines, the deciding factor must be what is the clear teaching of scripture? And that's what we're going to be focusing on, right? So I think I'll do this, this next point, the you in tulip, unconditional election, and then we'll end off this episode of the podcast, and then we'll, we'll leave the LIP, <laughs> the lip, for the next uh, episode. We'll try to cover those three, okay? So let me first start off by explaining the Arminian position on this. The Arminian position on God's election is generally based on God's foresight of man's faith, right? There are some Arminian theologians who differ uh, and believe a little bit differently, but this is the view of classical Arminianism, right? Uh, the foresight that God looks in the corridors of time and sees man's faith. You know, it asserts that before the foundation of the world, God foresaw that certain people would, of their own free will, choose Christ. And thus, he chose them for salvation, right? So God looks down the corridor of time, sees that they'll choose him, and then he chooses them. Uh, however, one has to ask, in what meaningful sense is it God's sovereign choice if it is contingent on him foreseeing man's choice? Now, in contrast, the Reformed position, and I think the biblical position, is that God's election is unconditional. God's sovereign choice of certain individuals for salvation was not based on foreseeing any response uh, of obedience on their part, but it was based solely in his good and sovereign will and his mercy and his grace. Concerning this doctrine of election, um, Spurgeon actually commented that whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen and there's no getting rid of it. Now, perhaps uh, part of our aversion to this doctrine of election is that um, the word is associated in modern years anyway to the concept of democracy, right? That everyone gets a vote. And when you think election, you think voting, right? However, we must not impose our societal norms, our modern norms or preferences onto this biblical, onto the biblical text. 
the Bible was written in a much different world to ours, yet its truth also can, uh, can transcend to our culture, and we must let the word speak. So let's turn to the word, okay? Let's look at some of the scriptural support here for unconditional election or God's sovereign choice. And I'm going to summarize it in four points. Firstly, God has chosen to grant salvation to an elect people. The elect are a specific group of people whom God has chosen to save. This concept is not just a New Testament one, but it actually has its roots in the beginning of God's dealings with his people. You see, Moses affirms God's gracious choice in election in Deuteronomy 10, 15. He says, Yet the Lord sent his, set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. God's choice is upon those whom he has set his love upon. Even from Abraham, out of whom God would bring his covenant people, Israel, God's sovereign choice is at work. This is affirmed actually in Nehemiah 9.7, where it says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abram. It was not Abraham who chose God, but God who chose him. Prior to God calling him out of Ur, he was just some other pagan. God's choice is gracious, and you can see Romans 11.5 on that. Now, Jesus also affirms that the elect are chosen for salvation in his prediction of judgment upon Jerusalem in the Olivet Discourse. You can see Matthew 24, verses 22 to 24, and verse 31, for example, of that. And in John 6.37 to 39, Jesus confirms that the elect are those uh, whom the Father has given to him. He says that, quote, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now note here, clearly what is being said by our Lord, that all who are given to him by the Father, right, that the Father gives to the Son, will come to him and that he will lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. This is the sure election of God for the salvation of his people. In John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, quote, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus again confirms the election of a specific people in his high priestly prayer found in John 17, where he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Note, right? I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. So Jesus' intercession even is specific. He's praying for those whom the Father has given to him. It is a definite group that he has in mind. The, the alternative interpretation would be actually absurd, as this would posit that Jesus prays for some undefined group that the Father doesn't know that he's giving to him until he foresees that they'll choose him anyways. But then, if that's the case, why is there any need for him to pray for them? At this point, you might be thinking, oh man, darn this Calvinist Jesus. But this is just the, word of, of the, the words of scripture here, right? The Apostle Paul actually confirms this doctrine. He says in Romans 8, 28 to, to 33, he says that all things work together for good for those who are called elect, right? Because they, those who are foreknown by God are also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, justified and eventually glorified. Because of this, Paul exalts in the confidence of the Christian. And he says, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over, uh, over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. That's Romans 8, 31 to 33. Now notice that is the same group of people that Paul is talking about. The same group that is predestined is the same group that is ultimately glorified. And this is his reason for such confidence for God's elect. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's verse 5. You see, this election is from eternity past and according to God's good pleasure and according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 11. 
the apostle Peter also writes to the Christians who are dispersed, and he says that they're those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's First Peter one one. Later in his letter, he says that those who stumble over Christ stumble because they dis- because they disobey the word as they were destined to. That's First uh, Peter two verse eight. However, for his audience of Christians, he calls them, so the people that Peter was writing to, he calls them a chosen race, verse 9, who are now God's people who have received his mercy, verse 10. The Apostle John in his Apocalypse confirms that it is the ones whose names have been written in the book of life who are faithful to God. That's Revelation 13, 8. So this is all throughout the Bible. Secondly, God's choice is not based on any merit. This is really important to understand too. God's choice of whom he saves has always been based upon his goodness and grace, not any foreseen merit in us. God does not look down the corridors of time and see that we will choose him and then choose us. God chooses us actually apart from any merit in us. He chooses us not because we are good, but because he is good. This was true even in the Old Testament as Moses confirms in Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8. He says, for you are our people, Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are, who are on the face of, face of the earth, it is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. God's choice is often actually quite opposite to what the world would have um, you know, considered prudent. He chooses often what is considered foolish in order to shame the wise. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, this is because the purpose of God's choice is his own glory and not ours. That's what we said at the beginning, that this is the, the, the center point of Reformed theology. It's, got, it's all centered around God's glory. So thus, the doctrine of election excludes us from all boasting. It removes it from our lips because we were not chosen because we were better than anyone else. You're not choice meets. In fact, quite the opposite often. <laughs> Paul actually considered himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. And many others who've been saved by God's amazing grace would likewise consider themselves totally undeserving. God's election is not because of our works, because of our own purpose and grace, right? Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul makes this point emphatically in his argument in Romans 9, actually, Romans 9, 11, about the choice of uh, Jacob over Esau, that though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, notice the purpose, right? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Thus, it's clear that God's election is a gracious choice, not based on works, whether actual or foreseen, The conclusion that Paul draws in verse 16 of Romans 9 is that so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Thirdly, faith and good works are a result of God's election. Now, saying that faith, whether actual or foreseen, is the basis of our election is actually getting things backwards. The Bible shows us exactly the opposite, that we believe because we were predestined and elected or chosen. In Acts 13 verse 48, um, through Paul's preaching to the Gentiles, it was as many as were appointed to eternal life who believed. And in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul tells them that they know their election, 1 Thessalonians 1 4, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, verse 5 and that God did not appoint them to wrath, but rather to salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, um, chapter 5, verse 9. The fact that the gospel was effectual to salvation in the church in Thessalonica showed Paul that God had chosen them. That's important. In the second letter to the Thessalonians, he describes them as brethren beloved by the Lord 
because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Second Thessalonians 2.13. Paul clearly states that we who have trusted in Christ are to, to the are actually um, saved to the praise of his glory. That's Ephesians 1.12. And later in Ephesians 2.10, he says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our good works, therefore, are a result of God's election. Paul goes even so far as to say um, that for, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, right? so it's granted to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, as Philippians 1.29. Now the word it has been granted that's, uh, that's being translated from the Greek actually comes from the same Greek word as grace. So literally, he's saying that it's been graced to us both to believe in Christ and to suffer for his sake. Now, some object that this view of election would make us lazy and, and passive since God has predetermined everything. However, that's not how Paul argues. You see, later in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So far from being a discouragement from effort, Paul actually sees this as the basis for a spirit-empowered effort. And this is because God is working in us both the desires, the will, right? And the ability to work. Uh, that we, and that's how we work out our salvation. He assumes that we're already saved. And this is the outworking of that salvation. The Apostle Peter makes a similar argument in 2 Peter 1 where he says that God's power has been has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, verse 3. And thus we're to make every effort to grow in faith and maturity and fruitfulness, verses 5 to 8. And then to be diligent to confirm our calling and election by doing so, verse 10. So notice, notice here, that Peter does not say that these things produce our calling and election, but rather that they confirm it, right? That the good works are a result of the election. They're the necessary outworking of true salvation. It's the same argument that James makes, that faith without works is dead. James 2 verses 14 to 26 argues this, right? And this is what true saving faith is. Fourthly, God's foreknowledge is of, a, of particular persons. Now, some argue that God's foreknowledge and predestination is of some undefined uh, group of people, not specific persons. However, the biblical term for no, right, prognosco, uh, is used actually in Romans 8.29. It, it's used of particular persons, and its normal usage means to for love or to set regard upon, to know with a particular interest and to set affections upon. Now, for example, in rebuking his people, God says um, through the prophet Amos, right, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'll punish you for all of your iniquities, Amos 3.2. Of the prophet Jeremiah, God tells him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah 1.5. Christ's rejection of false believers on the last day is based on him knowing them. He says in Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23, and these are verses that should sober us all. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul affirms that our love for God is proof that we are known by him, by God. In 1 Corinthians 8, 3, he affirms that the Lord knows those who are his. In 2 Timothy 2, 19, of Christ, the apostle Peter says, uh, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, 1 Peter 1.20. Now, clearly, Peter is talking about God knowing someone specific, Christ in this case, right? So, therefore, that same word, right, has to mean God's foreknowledge of specific individuals. This is one of the Christian's actual greatest treasures. Uh, and the, the fact that we've been foreknown, in this way, and loved from all eternity past by God. Now, Gerdas Voss, I think, said it best. He said, the best proof that he will never cease to love us 
lies in the fact that he never began. Let that kind of blow your mind a little bit. The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in the fact that he actually never began. There was never a beginning point to God's love that he set upon you because it was set from a time eternity past. The Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes it this way. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel of good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ to everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or uh, any other thing in creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. This doctrine of God's sovereign and gracious election is the reason for the Christian's confidence in their salvation, because God will never go back on his choice. Encouragement, right? This is actually encouragement for working heartily unto the Lord. And it's assurance that he loves us specifically with an everlasting love from since eternity past. This is part of God's secret counsel, meaning that it's not up to us to try to figure out the elect. That knowledge belongs to the Lord. See Deuteronomy 29.29 for that. However, we know that someone is elect when they respond with true faith to the gospel. And that is the means by which God has given us to reveal those who are his. See Romans 10, verse 14 to 17. So I'm going to end this podcast or this episode here uh, just because I don't want to go on too long and we'll pick it up in uh, the next podcast episode and we'll take a look at the L, the I, and the P, the limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. But I hope that you've enjoyed this and that it's been beneficial. I hope that you see from scripture itself that this is a biblical doctrine. And I'm excited to get into the the lip of the tulip uh, because that really gets interesting. So tune in for the next uh, episode in this series. And until next time, soli deo gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.